Hello, I'm Mike Leach-Dewberry, host of Artroverted, a podcast about the art world. Each week, I speak with leaders and changemakers in the arts, from artists to museum directors and everyone in between. We discuss their experiences, the communities they serve, and why they've dedicated their lives to art. This week, I speak with principal of Collector House, Jennifer Kloss, an art advisor and trained decorative arts historian. As a former museum curator, she takes a holistic approach to building her clients' collections. In our conversation, we talked about everything from starting as an intern at the Costume Institute at the Met, to her nine-year tenure at the Oklahoma City Art Museum, to visiting art fairs with her clients online. This episode was recorded on June 11th, 2020. So without further ado, let's jump in. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. So you were a curator at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art for almost a decade before founding Collector House. What attracted you to advising? Well, the field of art advisory has grown in the past 10 years. And I, as a museum curator, was always interested in teaching people about collecting and from the perspective of how museums showcase art, and they may be looking for acquisitions. And really part of developing the patron level is 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 usually guiding them and in, in telling them and teaching them about the art world. I began to receive questions from people about if I want to learn more about this contemporary artist, or, you know, where should I go? Or, you know, how do I learn more about buying art? And so I, I really sort of transitioned into this somewhat naturally because I had for many years been looking at collecting and following the art world from the museum perspective. So I really sort of just shifted it to the individual perspective. So that's the great thing is I still do a lot of the same research in terms of looking at the art world and what pieces are available. And now I just work on an individual basis with private clients and, uh, and corporations. So it's um, maybe just changing it from maybe a large 6,000 square foot exhibition to really looking at specific spaces and helping people guide their collection. So it's quite fun. So what does it mean to be an art advisor? Because we know curating is exhibition building, whether it's in a gallery or a museum, but an art advisor is a little bit different. So the term art advisor and art consultant are often used interchangeably, and they really refer to the same profession. It is really someone who is, in a sense, acts as a private curator for individuals. So that person can do the research, provide also a curatorial basis to guide the collection. So if a client has a specific vision for collecting all art from a certain time period or a nationality or made of all one type of material or maybe diverse materials, it's about really curating a private collection in a sense. And so that art advisor not only works with that client to provide the practical side of the field in terms of coordinating contact with the gallery galleries and coordinating purchases, uh, shipping, insurance, installation, really almost acting as a collections manager in a sense. So art advisors, I like to say we manage and we wear many hats. We wear many hats because we are really become the point person. And depending on how involved the client may be, but the client may be quite involved with the gallery as well. And I'm really end up being the somewhat manager in terms of where we look for art, if we go to art fairs, where we make gallery visits, if we travel to different cities to see art. And of course, right now, um, during the pandemic, we are looking at a lot of art online. So art advisors 
really, we each individual art advisor may have a slightly different job description, but we all are pretty much doing the same thing in terms of giving the client insights into what to buy and how to buy it uh, by works of art on the market on the marketplace. So we're looking at value and cost and a bit of strategy as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point to to jump on to now is strategies. People come to collecting from so many different avenues, whether their parents were collectors, uh, whether they're artists themselves, or they're trying to decorate their homes. What sort of strategies do you use to cultivate collections? I try to meet the client where they are in this whole big process of collecting or the art world. I like to say I am ready to work with an emerging collector, someone who has never bought art before. So that may take some time on the front end to educate them a little bit about what you can get for various price points and where you want to live with this piece of art. Does it? Would you like to live with this in a specific space? Because I also do say art can be moved around all around the house, but if you are in, in multiple locations or wherever this may be, living with art is important. So if you do want to live with a piece in a specific space, I also am equipped and well aware of the fact that let's analyze that space so that we make sure that that piece can live there safely. In other words, what is where do you want it to hang? Can it physically hang there? Is it too heavy? Is it safe to hang in that space um, in terms of light or humidity? Or so there's a little bit of a thought to go around the actual placement, like I said, of this idea of living with art. So I think the strategy becomes where I can reach the goal of finding that piece for the client and it fits their own style, taste, their vision for what interests them about the artist or the historical side of the piece or the subject matter. And can we get it, ship it safely to where it needs to be installed? And then, like I said, can it safely live in that space and make sure we, I work with proper art handlers to hang pieces so that I know the mechanics behind the installation will help maintain the livelihood of the piece, but also make it safe for any human interaction as well. So I think the strategy can come from any from all of these different factors. And of course, the financial component of buying art is one of the more important sides of it because we all do value what we buy and we want to feel proud of that purchase. And I like to say that I want to find art that is going to fit the client's budget and maximize what the best you can buy at the time. Let's try to maximize. I never try to guarantee that an artist is going to be worth something down the road because we all, I wish I had a a crystal ball, but we all like to make the best purchase. We make smart decisions. We like to make smart decisions and also smart decisions with some passion behind it because the client also needs to love the piece and really feel passionate about living with the piece as well. And then that way, no one's ever disappointed down the road. So if you buy the art that you love, 
we all win. Absolutely. And I I feel that there's a lot of barriers to entry. I mean, you were talking about all of the behind the scenes components that are required from the first experience of someone walking into a gallery or museum to then it ending up above their fireplace or in their powder room. What sorts of programming does Collector House and, and you do in order to cultivate people's interest and also show them that art is accessible? So one of my favorite parts of my job is talking about art and teaching people about art. I've probably given tours for throughout my whole career, um, going all the way back to my undergraduate studies at Vanderbilt in Tennessee and giving programs and lectures. So I helped put together programs for the other art history students um, to look into jobs in the art world. And then all the way up through my time at the Bard Graduate Center, I gave tours of the gallery exhibitions there. And then, of course, when I started my job as curator at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art, giving tours is certainly part of the job description of a of a of a curator. We don't give all the tours, of course, thanks to the docents and our the wonderful education staff at a lot of museums. But what we do is we're brought in for a lot of the specialty tours. We help teach the docents, we help teach the staff, I help teach the staff. So these ideas of giving people a, a tour and you and I talking about art has been really important, not only for Collector House now, but also building up throughout my career. So giving tours is something naturally to me. So I give a lot of in-person tours. Um, Right now, my tours are all online, um, whether they be private tours of gallery exhibitions or art fairs. And they might also be in a group setting as well. So if anyone is interested in joining one of my tours, um, I tell them just to go to my website, um, collectorhouse.com, or to go to my Instagram and send me a message that they're interested in learning more about my tours. So I'm adding more and more as the summer goes on, and that we are seeing in this art world, this shift going online. So for people to be able to log in and hear me talk about a piece, I find they're going to remember the piece better when they hear a story. So one of my taglines that I like to say is let art tell its story. And I'm here to help tell that story and the stories behind the artists and their process and materials and their theories and what make them unique is oftentimes just the the interesting book to get people excited about art and that accessibility that you mentioned, Michael, um, for it to feel not so intimidating. And I've seen visitors over the years to the museum, you know, take art for what it is and and try to look at it and not be too intimidated. Sometimes people are often, sometimes actually intimidated to read wall labels, I've found. And so I think I like to say, I want to meet people where they are. And until they hear me speak, it's just a, it's a much better way to connect with my audience. And so certainly education. And on that part, just me connecting with artists and galleries is quite important because then I can really convey more closely the intention of the art to my audience. And I think conveying that intention is even more powerful uh, when you have the artist there, 
when you're going to a studio visit. How are you able to connect artists and collectors in your practice? And do you try to work with artists directly? Do you prefer galleries? Are you supporting emerging artists? How, what is the role of uh, the art advisor, you know, kind of in that ecosystem? Well, when I can link the artist to the, co- the collector, that in a sense is just such a wonderful relationship building entity. Now, sometimes that's not quite available, um, especially as if the artist is mid-career or maybe a very well-established artist, it may be a little bit harder to access that artist on a more personal basis. It's not impossible. I'm, but, but oftentimes the great part about emerging artists is that they're very open and willing to meet the collector. And, and if it, if that artist happens to be local here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, that's great. I can often make those introductions. We also, I could take a client to an exhibition opening or to a private view and we make that connection through the gallery. Um, and then like we've said, like you mentioned a studio visit as well. So where they actually get to see the artist in their space, see how they work, learn much more about their process and the materials. And that's wonderful. And those types of, those types of relationships really build a lasting collector drive or a collector inspiration. Because then if you have a client who's really interested in following that artist, that is really the ultimate goal so that we build up this support for emerging artists. And it still is about the artist making that work. We really wouldn't have anything to buy unless the artist is making the work and we do need to support them. So I I do support artists that aren't represented by galleries and I do work primarily with galleries um, because it is sort of this still this important structure of the art world. But I also realize the fact that with so much digital content right now, even in the past couple of years, and then it's growing even more now, that there is an ability for me to connect with artists right now and can make those connections to collectors, um, even if it is on Instagram or from their website. So I think in that sense, there's always an exploration of the research process of finding artists everywhere. So um, it's not that I, I wouldn't work with artists that don't have a gallery. So I think, you know, all artists start somewhere. So I think the ability now for them to have their own Instagram page and to help put their art out there um, has been quite valuable to them. Yeah, I think Instagram has been a very valuable tool for collectors and for purchasing art. I've purchased art from artists off Instagram. And it's great that artists are now able to reach a much wider audience. But I was talking to a gallerist the other day, the the benefits of having a gallery, so many more things that a gallery can do that Instagram can't do, you know, insurance, shipping, having a space. It's pretty interesting when you talk to artists and you're saying, would you like to be represented by a gallery? And some of them are kind of take it or leave it, or they're worried about the 50-50 split but maybe that's just where they are in their career that they don't realize how important that is. And I do say that's important to bring up in a lot of, in a lot of my talks when I'm actually giving an event at a a gallery uh, and even at an art fair, I like to remind everybody that the role of the gallery is quite valuable because what they can do is help be the business side to an artist and help put their work out there, curate shows, 
for of their new works be their support not only for marketing the business side but most importantly they set the value of it of their work and so the artist isn't placing their own value to their work and so it's a sort of build up of the art market that the gallery can help review the prices and as an artist begins to continually successfully sell and then they look to see maybe how they could increase prices. And so that's actually what's important to my job as well, because I want to propose artists that also are going to have a trajectory in the art world and to be build, built up and have the potential to be built up to reach new audiences nationwide, internationally. Where does this gallery show these artists? And so I want to, that's actually how I look to see the potential of that growth. So is there potential for growth? Or if there's, there always is potential growth for any artist. It's just that we want, I want to think about those factors. You've mentioned several times, uh, we've been discussing the art world going virtual. Obviously, we're taping this during the global pandemic of COVID-19. It's June 11th. We uh, in Texas have been open for a few weeks. It's kind of scary, but it's it's part of life. We have to to move forward. And there have been many developments in the art world uh, that it's been affected. Art Basel last week uh, announced that they were canceling their 2020 June Fair that was slated to take place in Basel. It's kind of the one of the biggest art events uh, of the year, and it's forced many other fairs to postpone and cancel. And I'm wondering how important are fairs for you and your clients, and how are you adapting to the New format. I am personally a big fan of art fairs because of the fact that I, even as a curator at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art, was able to go to art fairs and connect with a lot of galleries at one time and to see a lot of art at one time. And then when I became an art advisor, it became even more important. So one of the first fairs I attended with my new business was Freeze London, um, I believe. And so it was actually a really nice time to go around and see all the galleries and say, you know, I'm starting my own business. I've I've departed my museum job. I'm now an art advisor and to build up those connections. So I love art fairs and I'm known for saying the line that if you go to an art fair, you're able to basically travel around the world and see the international art world in one day or however long you you choose to stay at the art fair. Oftentimes, like I said, I could stay days upon days just at one, but you then get to explore and see art in person. Now, now that we are experiencing this pandemic and through the COVID-19, we can't be there in person, so it changes things. But I also think it has given us new opportunities. If I have a client really interested in buying something, we will try to find a way to get the best high resolution image we can, or we will set up the video chat with a gallery for them to video the piece as we walk around it or to video the texture on the surface of a canvas. And I think with these online viewing rooms, which has become sort of a whole new category in itself, this online viewing room, we can now look obviously to so much art, but I've also found that with the immense amount of material that is shown in not only the art fairs or even on an exhibition website on a gallery, it still requires some thought 
into researching these online viewing rooms because it's it's even hard as an art professional myself to sit and click on 280 gallery pages for Art Basel, which I'm going to do. I'm excited about. And, but it also takes some strategy because I also, just in the sense that I curate my tours for clients at an art fair, it requires me to then get really well equipped for giving either a private tour or, like I said, these group tours of these online viewing rooms. Because, you know, my client's not going to be able to sit there all afternoon and I go through 280 viewing rooms. That's just a lot of information to consume. So as I listen to more and more art professionals talking on in articles and podcasts the past two to three months during this pandemic, I think the consensus is that it certainly has opened up a whole new level of accessibility of the art world and this much more transparency and some posting prices and getting to see and have access to this, where even with Freeze New York recently, last month, that was usually a a ticket price that someone had to buy, you would get to the fair, but now it really, it's open to the public. So you are opening up to the general public, which I think is uh, a good thing. So I think this accessibility and the transparency is a good thing. And I think that we will see how this evolves, but I will say it takes some foresight because even some of the art world professionals I've talked to, we've all said, well, you know, the digital world is different. We all love to be on the computer, but even for us, 280 is a lot, you know, there's just a lot to consume. So you, I don't want to use the word we get inundated or bored, but you, we also have to find ways of staying very well connected to this online content. So when galleries provide a bio or a story right next to the piece, it's it's very helpful because then I'm not, I oftentimes I'm opening up multiple websites at the same time because I'm going to look for things. But if it's right there, I'm going to be more inclined to stay within that viewing room and, and really analyze it much more. So there's just all different ways to look at it. But I would say, I will say I've been able to connect with more people through these online formats and other cities, whether it be potential potential collectors and galleries. So I think right now we're in a really interesting time that's been in that sense, um, sort of a growth period. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and exciting to hear how it really has connected all of us. I, I'd love to know what you think about this. I think that it's really going to change collecting because we've traded the experience of seeing the work in person for content. These viewing rooms have hundreds and sometimes thousands of words about the artist, you know, written by a curator from the artist themselves or a video of the artist or from an art historian. And I'm wondering if collectors are now going to become more discerning because there's more information out there for them to educate themselves about different artists and if that's going to affect how they buy. I think that we will, time will only tell. I think that the numbers show that people are still open to buying online and even just buying it um, directly off of having really never seen it in person. And even for that instance, buying art at auction, um, those numbers have always been traced um, and tracked the past past couple of years, ever since really the, in, uh, the beginning of online auctions. And so 
I do say that we're going that direction, but I will say that a lot of people I work with, they would probably still, at least at a certain price point, it would be hard for them to, to yes, perhaps jump in unless they really got into the research side of it and really wanted to do a lot of this on their own. Um, they may still want to, you know, ask those kinds of questions to me about, about the artist and finding out more about whether they should buy that piece or not. So I think that yes, to your point that it is opening up more information to them, but it's this idea that still the collector um, they've got the passion themselves to really learn, which oftentimes they do. Cause I think that comes with the idea of building a collection and sort of seeing their, their level of comfort in navigating these things online. So, but I think it's for the most part, a, a good thing. And we will see this, we will see this increase. We will see this increase. I mean, every facet of the art world has gone online and, and Sotheby's has, I think they've had almost uh, 60 to 70 auctions online since the beginning of the year. And they've had works that are selling up in the $1 to $2 million range. So it, it's clear that there are people uh, who don't mind spending that kind of money online. And who's advising them and where they're getting that information and the faith, uh, who knows. Um, but but that's, that's territory that we're going to have to really jump into. I mean, I guess we could talk about um, young collectors and how you're able to, I mean, for people who've maybe never been to a gallery before, and you're now reaching them through your your website, through your videos, you're, you have a great YouTube channel and you have tours of uh, you at uh, art fairs uh, around the world. And I'm wondering if there's other ways that you're brainstorming to reach new collectors. Uh, I think it's really wonderful to see where the range of not only people's ages that are interested in collecting, but then also um, getting them either to the gallery or getting them to one of my programs. And I think that depending on if they would like to add a couple pieces to their collection, they may be, uh, I have clients that are in their 60s that are still excited to look to, to maybe some contemporary art. Um, but I also am working with the younger audience for this emerging collector base that, yes, has not probably been exposed to going to lots of art gallery openings or uh, understanding that, you know, art galleries are free and that you, that they are there is even if it does seem intimidating, they are there to answer questions that you may have and that you can go. Now, I will preface it that a lot of galleries are, are closed or closed right now and open by appointment. So if someone does want to go to, to one, but I think that this idea that you have to be a collector is even sometimes often intimidating. So even someone who's beginning in this field, I I may meet someone even through friends or might be at an event and they say, oh, I'm not a collector. And they try to instantly show me that, you know, and, and maybe even get in a little bit of a defensive realm when I say, oh, no, that's, you know, um, anybody, anybody can collect. And I like to say that everybody acquires things in life. You acquire, we, we buy 
in a commerce society. They just might not realize that maybe even if it's down to simple objects and objects for the home, you are creating your own sort of aesthetic in your own collection, even if it comes by way of a small vase that you have or something for your house. We all, like I said, and I keep saying this, we all start somewhere. So, but I like to say that your living space sort of creates your own sense of your own world and your own identity. And that's become even more important during the pandemic. I think everybody is looking to their own living space and maybe analyzing what what does inspire you in this space? Or do you need a new home office? Or do you have anything in your living room, either above your sofa or above your fireplace to where you can sit there and feel inspired by your art? So sometimes I like to kind of take a further, bigger step back in, a, in an approach to people um, in this sort of realm of accessibility and this idea of collecting and this emerging side of it. So even if a young person has uh, several hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars, there are works of art by even some well-known artists and particularly works on paper that you could buy a well-known artist for a thousand dollars. So, you know, you get, you try to get someone interested when you can. Yeah, so talking about objects in in in, in your space in your home, uh, in addition to having a certificate in interior design from the Inchbald School of Design in London, uh, you also have a master's from the Bard Graduate Center in Decorative Arts, Design, History, and Material Culture. And I'm wondering, how do you inspire people and encourage people to collect things that aren't blue chip, two dimensional works of art? And are the places where you source those objects how are they engaging in the virtual space? I and I do say that I appreciate and value my background in the history of decorative arts. And for anybody that maybe is not familiar with that term, we're really looking at the way objects have played a part in history in terms of how we've lived with these objects and how these objects are made. So whether it be furniture, textiles, ceramics, glass, carpets, fashion, all of these objects that you may see in museum settings that aren't paintings or sculpture, we're really looking at the history of decorative arts. And with that education that I received at Bard in New York, it was really so eye-opening because it really did show me, it's, it's a way of looking at history and it's a way of looking at even contemporary culture that is we're, is not really defined by specifically a certain type of maker. So we can be looking at a contemporary porcelain uh, work of art that's made by an artist um, or a designer or a maker. And I think that we can look at it in these bigger, broad terms. I think now I think of it just merely as looking at art in general and contemporary art. So I still sometimes distinguish the design community versus the overall art community and fine art world. But in my mind, we're really, especially when we're looking at contemporary art, it's all really becoming one as we get further, as we grow this field. So you may, we're seeing now galleries that are promoting artists that are making 
ceramics and they might be addressing issues in our contemporary culture right now. Or it may come down to the fact that it looks like a plate or it may have a decoration to it. But I think it's it's about bringing all of that together for the collector. And to answer your question about how does that relate in this digital world, I would say that's where Instagram has really sort of helped contribute to this idea of a variety of materials, because that way you're seeing all this these different types of art being made. And oftentimes, if there's an artist is showing a video or a behind the scenes video in their studio, those are what's telling the story, this much bigger, broader story where you can look through what's being made. Um, but then also galleries are promoting artists in that realm too. So like I said, with ceramics or textile, I just have seen another artist who's based in textile that creates these large textile woven panels. That is, So I think we can come at it from all different, different perspectives. Do you encourage collectors or in your strategy, do you try to get them to collect more than just works of contemporary art? Um, I mean, that extends to design and even objects of material culture. Yes. I like to actually show in a lot of my proposals a variety of materials, and that's where that speaks to. So if it's made out of wood or I an interesting material that might spark their interest. Because I like to think of it as if I just show all one type of painting, which I can do, it's just, I may not know if they then respond to something else as well. Or it might be a whole wall installation made out of porcelain. They may, that may really intrigue them. And so I think that I like to sometimes show a diversity of works, not only from artists, artist background, materials, because an, a collector may not know they'll be interested in a piece until you show them something. And so until you start the dialogue, I like to oftentimes say people may think they know what they want. And that oftentimes that may be the case, but I often find that it actually, their viewpoint broadens when you show them more. So they and I've oftentimes sometimes had people that actually have a little bit of difficulty conveying what they think they want to buy, or they may convey it and describe it in a way that they don't really. They may say impressionistic, but they really may not know that that a painterly brushstroke is what you're referring to. So I think it's 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 interesting. Like I said, with the vocabulary and the idea of how we talk about art, but that's why I like to show a variety with my decorative arts background. How do you navigate the line between interior decoration and building an art collection? I think that the idea of interior decoration, I come from the standpoint of really almost the history of looking at the history of interiors. And we can look at that throughout the centuries. And so if you're going to look at interior decoration, let's go back to I mean, we could even go back to ancient times. We could go back to the Romans and say their decoration was trying to create environments to display their collections, uh, loosely speaking. Um, but it was really reflecting their own 
desires and their own. So if it was wall paintings and they were trying to bring nature and landscape into the, the one of the rooms, we see that. Like I said, we can see that in Roman and Etruscan painting. We can see it in, they wanted to create lavish wall paintings or maybe it was works that were ironworks that were part of utilitarian objects that were being used by them. That was really all about their collection. So if we go over the centuries, I do like to say the way we live and even the way we look at interior design today and interior decoration, those are still important in the way we look at art and collecting. And I may differ from some people in that sense, because I do think that there is a strong bond between these ideas. Because oftentimes I will say, I, I will often say this though, that art does not have to match the interior. Art can really be a dynamic addition to the interior or a new subtle addition to the interior. And so I, but I like to say that they can have a dialogue because that is what's been our history. So it's not that like an art collection has to be separate from the way we look at how a house is designed. Um, they really can help speak to one another. We can, it helps create the livelihood of that person's space and, and like I said, more important than ever as people are spending more and more time at home. What, what makes them inspired? What makes them feel by having that peace inside their interior? So I think with my studies, and that's particularly why I chose to go to the Inchbald School of Design, I wanted to know what the discourse is for the interior design field today and how we look at space. So I certainly really enjoyed the, the studies that we did of in creating interiors and our and our projects and how I could fill out a space. So I may not be uh, right now. I I help a lot with paint color and wallpaper and a little bit more of the the sort of feel of a home rather than a big construction projects. I really prefer to be on the aesthetic side of art and art choices or choices that are going to enhance that living space, but. I will say that my training at the Inchball School just made me understand space better. Um, I understand space very well from the museum perspective, but you actually don't also have to think about furniture or you don't have to think about as much because you're really working with plain walls. So I think by merging this idea of an in interior design, it makes me a better art advisor because I can really narrow down the practical side of living with art. Yeah, I think that's really important because I'm sure there's a lot of people who go to stores just to buy objects for their homes that uh, may, you know, maybe they are very expensive, but when they go to try and resell them, they're not going to have any value. And that's where the expertise of someone like you is is really important. So you brought up museums, and I guess we can kind of turn back to uh, your experience in the museum, um, and they're starting to reopen again, which is really exciting, and I hope they're doing it safely, because I couldn't imagine not being safe in a museum, but it's very challenging. And I mean, the AMD just relaxed its regulations regarding the deaccessioning of their collections to use funds for operating expenses, and 
with a moratorium on punitive actions through April 10th of 2022. How do you think that's going to impact the future of museums? Well, I think right now, museums in general are going to, you know, experience the, 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 the unfortunate side of the pandemic and having been closed for several months or even being closed further or having to close maybe and only open up specific times of the week or, and then to limit the guests if they have to have a timed ticket, that's less income. So that, that's, um, le- that's less admissions, that's less people eating in the restaurant and less people in the shop. So I think that museums are in a circumstance now where they will have to get creative with their bottom line. And I think that, you know, that's why also right now, it's, it is going to be really important for anybody out there that's interested in art to still stay connected. And if you still can keep your membership valid at your favorite museums, and I'm doing the same in my in my uh, practice today. So I started as an intern at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So when you read about even their situation now where they, you know, are going to be have a loss of millions of dollars worth. And I keep thinking, well, I launched my career there in the basement of working as an intern at the Costume Institute. So, you know, museums will still go on. I think it's going to hurt the smaller museums even more and even just the if ones that have very small staff, um, but they're going to hopefully still have some, some of their strong donor pool and their strong, um, and depending on how, what, what grants are available or not. I think we're in an interesting time now where we're, you know, we're realizing other ways that we can connect. I do think museums have become creative on their online programming and their lectures and taking things online when they can. So I think that some of that will continue and, um, I personally can't wait to get back into museums once they open, because I do think that it's still such an important part of seeing art in person and having that experience. Um, and I think that that will hopefully continue. I love to visit museums and historic houses. And so historic houses also, I find that it's going to be really important to support entities like that, that have either a small collection or that have these historical interiors. And I've certainly benefited from visiting so many sites across the U.S. and in, in, in Europe through um, the Addingham Trust and looking at the history of historical, in uh, the history of collecting, in the history of collections. So all of these entities are still important and we're going to we're gonna have to find ways of supporting them. Yeah, I think survival is kind of the everyone's wish right now, uh, especially for the smaller institutions. Let's now go into the lightning round. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Coffee or tea? Tea. And it's got to be a nice English breakfast tea. So PG tips or Yorkshire gold. Talking or texting? Talking. Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. What's the last book you read? I have just been working through the Ninth Street Women. That's on my that's on my Amazon wish list right now. It's next to the the new Warhol biography, which seems very intimidating. I think it's over a thousand. That's on pages. my list as well. 
What's your first memory in a museum? That's a great question. I have memories of being not only a child visiting with my parents and or grandparents um, to museums, but I would say the the really turning point was going on the tr- a trip with my sister, my twin sisters. We loved studying, looking at art together, but we our first family trip to Europe back in, I think, 1995, um, and standing in the Louvre, there's just nothing that changes that experience. And then that actually probably convinced me in that mere, mere moment to study art history. And so I signed up for art history as a high school student um, a year later. So I'd say maybe standing in, in such a magnificent place in a magnificent collection in Paris. Yeah, I think everyone's first visit to the Louvre is a little bit transformative. What do you collect? Well, I collect emerging contemporary artists, and I also collect uh, maps. So I collect historical maps and also contemporary maps. And it's something fun that really developed over the years because I would like to buy prints and historical maps on vacations when I would go to other cities and or even if I'm in Europe and they're easy to transport. So I can either transport them in a poster tube or if it's flat and it's I can sort of carry it in a flat case. So I will say if you collect works on paper or anything like maps, it's a way that they're somewhat easier to store and they're easier to transport if you are trying to build a little collection. So it's something fun. So and I actually still continue to learn a lot about collecting maps. So it's that's something that I'm even enjoying during the pandemic is that there have been some more talks online about maps and also another dealer in London, uh, Daniel Crouch Rare Books. He actually has a jigsaw puzzle, digitized jigsaw puzzle that you can put together, put back together that's of these important historical maps. So I found myself one night doing that. Um, and, and it entertained me and I learned something. So I was reading about the historical map and it, and then actually in this sort of puzzle jigsaw puzzle format that everyone's doing puzzles during the pandemic, it was an idea of taking a clo- literally a closer look at the, the map because of all the little puzzle pieces. So I, I love that. I love maps too. And, and I love when I see maps in museums, especially because I think it's really important to have a reference point. If you weren't an art advisor, what would you be doing? I was always interested in journalism. So I would actually say that I wanted to get into being a journalist as a writer or even a magazine ed- editor years ago. And so ironically, my viewpoint in sharing a lot about art almost is a journalistic element to it. So I would say if I weren't technically an art advisor, it would probably be an art journalist, uh, which is somewhat of a little bit about some of the skills I do today, but um, I would probably still be in the art field. I agree. I think for all of us who work in the art world, we can't live without art and we couldn't imagine not working with art or being around art in, in some way or Uh, shape or form. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be an art advisor? I would say to educate yourself on as much as you can about 
the art world. And my advice is to just stay very curious and stay open to how your audience can grow and also just your best skills. So use it to what you are great at. So um, it still takes sort of the the hard work of the research side of it, but a, a big portion of it is the sort of networking and you go to events. And so my best advice would be to connect with as many people as you can and to go to events. And now that things will begin to open up or to connect with people as best you can. And I think the other best piece of advice is stay in touch with everyone. The art world changes on a daily basis anyway. So if someone moves from one gallery to the next, you'll still have that person in your network. They may just be in a new gallery. So also try to diversify your network base. Try to get to know several people at a gallery in case one person leaves, and then you may end up learning about a whole new gallery because one of their staff may go to another gallery. So I will say, um, treat everybody as a friend because in the art world, you will probably encounter them again. Agreed. It's a very small world. If you could own one work of art, what would it be? I love what happens in the early modern period in the 19th century. So I would probably say um, I would love a Monet portrait or Dejeuner sur l'herbe. Um, of, 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 and and then also an honorable mention would be a 20th century work. I would just probably own a Jackson Pollock if I could just own the big Jackson Pollock that the Met, that MoMA has or that the Met has, then that would be sort of this seminal. I looked strategically to abstract expressionism in my art history background, in my academic background, is just this turning point. So the turning point would either be with Monet or um, in the early modern Impressionist period, and then also with a piece by Jackson Pollock. I wouldn't mind having either of those or both of those hanging in, in my home somewhere. So my final question I ask everyone is, there's no crystal ball, but if I gave you a magic wand, what's your wish for the art world? Still be to thrive and to stay open to these new audiences and the way we're building new collectors. And so the art world has built itself off of sort of this level of exclusivity or in this rarity in buying original art. And yes, that's what we do and that's what we try to sell and promote. But I also, on the flip side of the coin, if we can grow and grow beyond this sort of level that uh, we're open to emerging collectors and we're opening open to new people buying art, that only benefits everybody and around the world. And that way we can embrace culture and support artists making new work and find the people that are interested in buying it. And so I'm really just my hope would be that this accessibility continues. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I hope that the momentum that has been built up by the art world being forced to go virtual uh, will continue and we won't lose that. Thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this, Michael. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artroverted. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to join us next week where we speak with Charlie Calkins. Vice President and Head of Office of Sotheby's in Dallas. Remember, when it comes to art, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted because you can always be artroverted. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.